Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Today we're talking about the scandal surrounding Hollywood titan Harvey Weinstein and how it's wrapping its tentacles around big law. The New York Times, the outlet that broke the Weinstein story, fired law firm Boyce Schiller this week. The Times had found out that David Boyce helped Weinstein conduct a spy operation to try to kill the story. A little later in the show, Law360 senior legal ethics reporter Andrew Strickler will join us to explain what happened and the ethical implication for boys. And stay awake for the end of the show when we'll talk about one appellate court weighing in on whether a judge falling asleep during the presentation of some evidence merits a new trial. As always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. So what are we talking about today? Well, I, I, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about uh, an interesting development uh, out of the uh, Seventh Circuit, uh, my my home circuit. Yeah. Uh, former President Obama reported uh, for jury duty today. I saw yeah, the I saw the Tribune post did like a push alert uh, where it said like yeah. former like former law professor uh, <laughs> uh, excuse from noted constitutional my, scholar Barack Obama. My jury duty experiences are never this great. Can you imagine how fun that would be? I was once in a jury pool with Lucy Liu uh, really? in, in wow. New York. Yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. It was they were taking people were taking pictures. Did she have an entourage with her? No, it was just her. Uh, and, but like pe- today when Obama was there there are already pictures coming out. People were like swarming him for selfies and stuff. I, I have to admit I would swarm for a selfie too. The, the, just the, the, the same, temptation would be the same too great. kind of thing happened when I was in the jury pool with Lucy Liu. She she came up to me and was like, aren't you one of the co-hosts of Pro Se? It was you mean, like, you right, mean she heard you yeah. talking to someone else right, and you yeah. were recognized by voice. Aren't you the president? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was great. So we have some uh, interesting news out of Capitol Hill to kick off the show with today. What's that, Alex? Yeah, I dove. We don't do many tax stories, and I sort of dove headfirst into the new uh, tax bill. It's making the rounds so much so that I began to feel like Begin to feel like Prince John from the Disney Robin Hood. Taxes, <laughs> wow, beautiful, lovely taxes. We get a lot of oh. weird. We get a lot of weird oh. movie references that here. That is the best. That was yeah, deep. So that's where I'm at. The GOP tax plan <laughs> that was rolled out last week has a lot of moving parts. Obviously, it's a massive overhaul of the U.S. tax code. But there's one piece of it that we want to talk about today that's got the legal profession kind of raising its eyebrows. So as as you mentioned, yeah. We don't talk about taxes too much here, sort of with good reason, because it's sometimes somewhat boring. But All this right. one has a pretty big angle for, for legal news. So uh, <laughs> why don't you break it down for us, sort of what what's happening here? Sure thing. One main prong of the corporate side of the tax reform plan proposes this tax cut for businesses that are set up as partnerships. They're known as pass-through partnerships in uh, business parlance. Um, and that provision would slash the taxable rate for partnerships from 30% to 25%. Mm-hmm. If you're in a corporate partnership, that sounds pretty good. Aren't law sitting. firms partnerships? Hey, come on, Bill. Don't don't get ahead of the stuff here. Yes. Uh, the only hang-up here, though, is that within the bill, as is currently written, there is an exception for, uh, quote, professional services firms. Aren't, aren't lawyers professional services? Sorry. <laughs> I'm into it. I'm way into it. Uh, yes, those types of firms do include... Uh, law firms, and as you can imagine, uh, they are not—they uh, are not too happy about not being um, eligible for this tax cut that everybody else is getting. So you would assume that a bunch of lawyers wrote this. Yeah. Why? Why, why would they do this? Uh, to yeah, that, that was—that was pretty interesting. Um, our senior legal industry reporter, uh, Abra Coe, wrote a great story, sort of detailing the blowback from this. And there's been quite a bit. And yeah, you nailed it. For a bill, it was probably written by some tax attorneys. They didn't do very kindly for their for their brethren. Um, Abra only has, this is somewhat anecdotal, she spoke to a couple people, but 
the reactions are about as you would expect, <laughs> apart from their general complaint of, you know, sort of picking winners and losers among yeah. businesses that are organized in a similar way. One of the main arguments against the bill is that we've talked in the past about the various barriers to young people getting into the big law game with right. regard to, you know, pe they're not passing the bar as easily as they used to. There's all kinds of, you know, systemic hurdles. Um, not to abuse them of their altruistic intentions, but part of the reason people go into these jobs is because they make a lot of money, and I'm sure they'd like to keep some of it. So if this remains on the books, you know, they could be on the hook for uh, a lot more than they would have under the previous tax regime. So, so this, is, uh, this is taxes, and we're talking about a tax on essentially on law firms. So I have to mm -hmm. think that people are already thinking about ways that there could be workarounds here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> what might those be? Again, not to impugn them or anything like that, but uh, this is a tax bill. And according to Abra's story, it gets a little bit wonky here, but one way that you might be able to get around it is that if there are multiple partnerships within your firm's structure with some overseeing profits from the firm and some overseeing, you know, the firm's assets regarding like property and real sure. estate for the many offices you have around the country or mm -hmm. around the globe, those ones that are focused on real estate and property, they might be able to wedge themselves into the 25% tax cut if they're not like, you know, providing a legal service. If they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and there's all this kind of stuff about folding in, you know, into a real estate investment trust fund and things like that. So that's one way you could go about it. Um, but it's all very provisional at this point. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's part of this too, right, Alex? It's right now the bill's just being marked up. So do we expect this to, this provision to stay in? Do we have any tea leaves to read there? What are we thinking? Well, it's always a guessing game uh, with our friends on Capitol Hill. As you said, it's being marked up in the House Ways and Means Committee as we speak. And I have been talking to our Capitol Hill reporters, Jimmy Hoover and Mike McInerney. So far, it's not come up for amendments as we record here on Wednesday evening. And I don't know that it would. It is. I mean, it's important to us and our listeners and readers because many of you are in the legal services industry. But, you know, with many moving parts for businesses and individuals, we'll see if an amendment gets dropped. I think we would feel comfortable saying, though, that expanding a cut like this for corporate partnerships probably wouldn't be the most politically popular thing. As it's written, it already uh, shuts off uh, about a $450 million revenue stream for the government over the next 10 years, according to the latest scoring of the bill. So beefing that up even more probably won't win a lot of political points. Then again, this administration has never been shy about pursuing politically unpopular things. Unorthodox. So we'll see. Uh, I feel like we say that a lot here, but it is in the very early stages of being marked up. So, and we'll still be yeah. covering this at Law360, so if this has piqued your interest, legal services yeah, listeners, please. then follow along with keep us. A, keep an eye on it. Thanks, Alex. Mm -hmm. So, Bill, I know you have one that's about some New York media stuff that's going on. Yeah, another one close to home after a story about big law taxes. Uh, <laughs> we've got one about media in New York. Yeah, uh, our, other, so, our, our other wheelhouse. Uh, last Friday, um, so a week ago, uh, a week after reporters and editors at DNA Info and Gothamist, two yeah. local news websites had voted to unionize. Yeah. Their newsrooms, their owner, Joe Ricketts, abruptly shut down both operations, firing the entire staff and removing all the content from the website and just replacing it with a letter explaining that the websites had been shut down. So the move sparked a pretty quick backlash, but the questions of sort of what this means legally is, is a little more complicated. The context, I think, matters here because Ricketts was a uh, his acquisition of these of these companies set off a lot of alarm bells at the time, and now it kind of came to a head. Can you unpack a little bit of the history? For yeah. Us? So Ricketts is the founder of TD Ameritrade. He is a billionaire. Um, he's a part owner of the Chicago Cubs. 
he he founded DNA Info in 2009 as this sort of hyper local mm-hmm. reporting operation about sort of at the neighborhood level in New York. Um, it has since become sort of a valued news source in New York. You know, you want to find out stuff about your little individual neighborhood. Yeah. He acquired Gothamist, uh, which is more more in sort of the gawker vein, sort of an irreverent blog that does some of their own reporting, some re-reporting of other news sites, but focus on New York City. Both have expanded to other cities in the years right. since. So they, uh, like uh, we should note, Law 360 voted to, right. to unionize mm-hmm. um, after a very contentious unionizing effort over at DNA Info slash Gothamist, uh, a, a situation that saw the management threaten to shut the company down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the editorial staffers voted to join the Writers Guild of America East. They were very thrilled about this, but on Friday afternoon, Without any warning whatsoever, Ricketts pulled both websites down, replaced them with this just letter explaining that uh, both sites would be shut down. He said that that the companies had long struggled to turn a profit and that at the end of the day that they are a business and that they needed to be economically successful to endure. So, And as media people ourselves, it's always a little sad to hear about these stories. How many people were impacted here? Uh, 115, which there were only about 30 in New York. Yeah. Uh, but this move closed all of their operations. So it closed uh, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, Washington, all these little outlets that they had all over the place. People who hadn't voted to unionize were also lost their jobs. Also in the interest of disclosure, just wanted to point out, I do know and am friendly with a couple people who write for these sites, just wanted to put that out there. Anyway, so we can continue going. Um, the move, obviously, in media circles, which we run in to a certain degree, Caught a lot of blowback. It did. I mean, Ricketts yeah. is, is, as I mentioned, a billionaire, and he's an outspoken supporter of President Trump, and he's been very vocal about his his um, opposition to organized labor. Uh, when all this was sort of being pushed, he said, quote, as long as it's my money that's paying for everything, I intend to be the one making the decisions about the direction of the business. So people immediately sort of tore into him once this happened, saying that this wasn't a business move, that if, if, if he wanted it to be a business move, he would have found someone to sell it for however cheaply he needed to. Yeah. But this was this was just this vengeful move to punish people on an ideological basis for, for doing something they didn't like. So what has the union said in response? So th- the union immediately came out and said, I mean, this is the union's worst nightmare. I mean, as you and I remember that that you get a lot of assurances when you're unionizing that, you know, that you're not all going to get fired, (laughs) that that they have your back. So, I mean, we're laughing, but that's a big hurdle for these people. That's that's a brave thing you have to do. Absolutely. Um, It's a scary process. And so the union immediately came out and said that they would explore all of our potential areas of recourse and we will aggressively pursue our new members' rights. Well, I covered labor and employment for many years and I sort of sadly asked this question, what chances do they have here? Because I kind of know the answer. Yeah, so not, they don't have a whole lot to do. Um, Vin Guerreri, our labor law reporter here at Law360, wrote a good story explaining that, you know, the move sucks. It looks like union busting, but... Well, especially because the statement, didn't the statement that he put up, it, it alluded to the union effort. It said it was one aspect oh, uh, of making the business difficult obliquely, to run. but yeah. yeah that, but it, that what, there were other things that it was sort of a, you know, headwinds in journalism and yada, 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 everything else. So, but, how, so how union busty are we talking about, according to Vin? Well, so it's, it, you know, according to longstanding Supreme Court precedent, a ruling in 1965 interpreting the National Labor Relations Act, uh, an employer has a right to shut down their business, to go out of business. You can't yeah. force someone to stay in business when they're losing money. Even if they, they shut the business down out of an anti-union sentiment, you're allowed to do that. 
there would be a better argument for the union if, say, he had shut down just the New York office, right? Mm-hmm. Right, so, the one that the single unit that exactly, unionized. and you can and you guys can sort of understand why that would be because a company could shut down a plant in Cleveland as a threat to all their other. It's places. more targeted yeah. to, and threatening. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So if he just shut down New York and said Chicago, L.A., don't do this. You're on notice. Um, this mm-hmm. is going to happen to you. That would be a better case for the union. But the fact that he shut them all down sort of forecloses that argument. So what would happen if Ricketts decided to start up a new version of this this reporting outlet? So that's where things get murky, that if he wants to start either of these back up or he wants to start a different media organization, you get into more tricky questions about his legal liability when it comes to the fact that he shut down this operation. So they'd have to weigh a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of things. There's, um, you know, how long he waits. There's this one Mm -hmm. year period where the union is still certified to represent the Mm -hmm. the bargaining unit. Um, There are questions of, you know, how, like what his motives were for shutting it down. If it was truly out of, out of economic concerns, how similar the 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 new new business is, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it seems like it would be a little bit different if he started a totally different organization, you know, to cover something completely different versus, Versus, versus just starting these businesses is up. Is being a journalism organization enough or is it like local journalism? Right. And, and we if, don't know. If yeah. he started this whole thing up and, and started hiring people again and he refused to hire all the old people right, that like had unionized. Right, like if he the unionizers. Yeah. Right, but th- there are no bright lines here and it's a it's a murkier question according to, to Vin's reporting. So it's it, it's cold comfort if you are mm-hmm. a yeah. journalist who just got fired, but it's, uh, you know, it... it it certainly prevents him from just doing this as a as a quick ruse to bust the union. Right. He really had to shut them down. But um, yeah, kind of a kind of a crummy situation. Um, yeah, it sure is. But yeah. thanks for talking it through. Yeah, sure. By now, just about everyone has heard about the allegations that media mogul Harvey Weinstein is a serial sexual harasser who assaulted many women over several decades. That story, first reported by the New York Times, has led to other men in Hollywood being accused of similar harassment. Now the allegations against Weinstein have swept up his long-term law firm. On Tuesday, the New York Times fired Boyce Schiller Flexner over what the paper called a reprehensible spy operation aided by David Boyce. The operation was meant to kill the story about Weinstein. With us today, we have Law360 senior reporter Andrew Strickler, who's been following the evolving story, particularly the fallout relating to Boyce Schiller. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me. This one is so complicated. So let's just start by setting the scene, catch us up with what the allegations were against Weinstein and that New York Times story that reported them out. Right. Well, after, you know, many years of sort of swirling rumors about Weinstein's behavior toward women, the New York Times and the New Yorker early last month both published uh, extensive investigations about uh, accusations from women going back decades, huge settlements that he's paid over the years, and some straight out accusations from women that Weinstein raped them. Yeah, it was pretty terrible stuff. It's pretty awful all the way back. Uh, You know, a lot of facilitators, a lot of other people involved uh, in trying to suppress the story, too. There were, like, non-disclosure agreements going on and things like that. So now this New Yorker article comes out this week that explains this spy operation to, 
you know, to, to suppress that story. Um, it's quite an amazing thing. It is a story that details a very complicated and concerted effort headed by Weinstein to target accusers, some of the women, many of the women who uh, spoke to reporters for those stories, um, and reporters themselves targeting reporters to sort of glean information. The primary actors in that story are spy firms, these private investigative firms, one of which is called Black Cube. So when we say spy firms, do we mean like honest to goodness, like international spy? Like what? Because I hear that and I think like... Black Cube sells itself as a international, go anywhere, do anything, speak any language firm, employing ex-Israeli intelligence officers. <laughs> That's crazy. They certainly leaned into it with the naming of their organization. That's about as James Bond as it gets. <laughs> right. Not to light of it or whatever. They but, do. Yeah. And I urge anybody who hasn't taken a look at the actual contract, uh, one of the contracts uh, published by The New Yorker, I urge you to go and read it. It's quite something. And it is a very uh, Miramax movie pitch kind of yeah. feel to it. And you think... This, these guys and Weinstein were uh, were made for each other. So that contract, the mention of the contract gets us to what we want to talk about today, that that this whole thing has swept up David Boyce, who is a well-known person to all of our listeners, mm-hmm. a very sort of a superstar lawyer involved in the, um, the gay marriage cases at the Supreme Court. He represented Al Gore uh, in Bush v. Gore. Yeah. Big name. You don't get any more uh, big time in the legal world right. than, than David Boyce. His name is on the Black Cube contract. Weinstein was a client of the firm for many years. He knew uh, Boyce personally. And Boyce signed the contract through which uh, Black Cube is being paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to do all kinds of undercover surveillance, phony business names, uh, phony personas, um, and in particular, targeting... uh, an actress named Rose McGowan, who's been one of the uh, most vocal accusers yeah. and has directly accused uh, Weinstein of raping her. And they were like reaching out to her to try and I, I know they were like they recorded like conversations with her. Yeah. And, and, they, and they were trying to torpedo her allegations before they made it into the Times. Yes. It appears that the main thrust of it was to try to get information out of McGowan and others that they could then pass back to Weinstein and his lawyers um, or other investigators in an attempt to squelch the New York Times story. Now, this is already, we're already treading into pretty unsavory territory here, but the turn that it took this week is that um, Weinstein is not Boyce's only client, as we've discussed. He's got some high profile clients, and that created a bit of a, a bit of a firestorm this week. Can you talk, can you talk to us about what happened? Well, uh, one immediate thing that happened was that the New York Times immediately had a problem with this. Not surprisingly, Boyce Schiller also represents the New York Times. Mm. The stated purpose of this Black Cube contract, it's unambiguously to completely stop the publication of this New York Times article. Uh, they did not get a heads up that one of the lawyers <laughs> at their firm was engaged oh. in facilitating this effort, and they weren't happy about it. Um, they came out with an extremely harsh statement accusing Boyce of a grave betrayal of trust by the end of the day yesterday. They fired the firm outright. And and Boyce did what kind of work for them? I know that he did, well, like... The, f- the firm lawyers at the firm had uh, handled a couple of different kinds of cases. There was one libel case... Uh, factually unrelated to Weinstein personally. Yeah. Um, but the the bigger picture there is that the, it was clear that the work being done for Weinstein 
and by Black Cube was um, a direct attack on them and their business. And certainly the New York Times considered this a serious conflict and betrayal and cut the firm loose. I mean, to me, it definitely sounds like a conflict, but you're here because you're our senior legal ethics reporter. So you can tell me what the ethics really are here. Well, in terms of the conflict, um, it's an interesting situation. David Boyce uh, very quickly said, uh, told the firm in the statement yesterday that the firm had an advanced conflict waiver with the New York Times. So an advanced conflict yeah, waiver. Explain can that. we Yeah, tell tell everyone. An advanced what that conflict is. waiver is a uh, is is what it sounds like. It's a provision and engagement letter um, that allows uh, a lawyer or a law firm to represent parties with adverse interests to the client uh, in matters. They can be written different ways, but generally speaking, in matters that are unrelated to the case that the lawyer is working for the client. The client can consider that. They have to give uh, to make it a valid advanced conflict waiver. They have to get informed consent on mm-hmm. um, all the general categories and possibilities of what that adversity might look like. They sign the waiver, and it would allow their lawyers, again, to represent people with some adverse interests. It is not a blanket, once we sign this, (laughs) you can go out and do anything and hire Mossad agents to come (laughs) after our reporters. It doesn't say. And hide it from us. It doesn't say. Well, and that's, I I thought that the most telling part of your story was the statement from the Times spokesperson who basically said like, oh yes, Boyes is saying we have this waiver and whether or not this waiver holds up to legal scrutiny is a different question entirely than whether or not we want to be in business with you anymore. It was just like, whatever the the legal ramifications of this waiver business, like we're out of here with you. Well, that is part of what's fascinating about it because uh, David Boyce is pointing to this waiver as right. explanation for, well, um, if there was a conflict, and maybe there was, maybe there wasn't, if there was a conflict, uh, we were free to represent Weinstein in this way under the terms of the waiver. Oh, and by the way, we didn't really represent Weinstein <laughs> in the matter uh, related to the New York Times. In fact, we had specifically denied Weinstein's request, which raises the very obvious question, well, what exactly was going on here? Why is your name on a contract? Yeah, tell us about the nexus between like how involved Boys was versus what he claims he was. Well, there's some already some conflicting ideas going yeah, right. on about that. Um, in the original New Yorker article, Boys said, and he's told the firm that the contract was drafted by Weinstein's other lawyers who were representing him in whatever legal fallout was coming from that right. uh, New York Times article, um, and that he simply executed it at Weinstein's request. Rubber stamped it, basically. That's what he's saying. It was overseen by other people. He wasn't managing it, et cetera. And he's, he's, he's eaten some crow over that, right? The idea that he, that, that he should have known what was happening with this contract and, and you know, that that, that, that that was a mistake by him? Well, well, it's, he did say that the entire decision to go into this matter was a mistake. Now, which mistake he's actually talking about is kind of hard to put your finger on because right. there seem to be quite a few of them. Um, you know, uh, being involved, uh, for a lawyer to be involved in any operation uh, as a rubber stamper or otherwise that involves ex-Mossad agents pretending to be, you know, women's rights activists, surveilling reporters. It's not, not a great look. It's it's more than not a great look. It's, it's a serious ethical problem. On top of that, 
if you're going to sign a contract for something that's purporting to be litigation services for a client, mm-hmm. it's the lawyer's duty to oversee that work and make sure that they're working within legal bounds and within the lawyer's own ethical bounds not to be out deceiving things. Boys is saying clearly he did not do that. He appears to be saying that in a way of saying there's distance between me and this yeah. effort. I shouldn't have done it. It was a bad call, but my hands are a little bit off of it. From a legal ethics point of view, that just really doesn't hold water. So we've been talking a bit about how David Boyes is defending himself for these decisions. Um, but is he also perhaps causing himself more trouble in what he's going out and saying now? Well, that is a, a really good question. Uh, the uh, He said a lot of things uh, to The New Yorker uh, and to The New York Times about what he told Weinstein uh, that he should or should not be doing, what he said about not wanting to represent him in a matter, even though Weinstein was still a client of the firm, mm-hmm. um, a, a number of details. He also disclosed a piece of the uh, engagement letter with The New York Times. All of these things are confidential communications with clients. Right. If they were in a litigation, these would be considered privilege unless there was a really good reason why they weren't. So it begs the question of what exactly is he doing here? Um, We have asked the firm repeatedly, did he have permission (laughs) Permission to be talking about these very sensitive matters? Um, I think we can all uh, safely assume that Harvey Weinstein did not give David Boyce permission to be talking to the New Yorker and the New York Times about hiring Mossad agent. It's just, it just isn't gonna, it just doesn't happen that way. Um, So, you know, that's one level of the problem too. We don't know what cover he believes he's under to be even talking about these things. This one has been so interesting. Thanks for coming and breaking it all down for us. I can't wait to see what happens next. It just gets layers and layers added on every day. I'm looking forward to it. I'll be coming back. Thanks, Andrew. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Bill, I think you wanted to talk about one today that has really just interesting well i think it's i just think it's important i want to compare it to to my situation that i couldn't fall asleep at work I, i've been told that that would be against the rules i believe <laughs> that i have said that yes um, i mean you're the you're the boss here <laughs> that's against the rules Do we have a ruling Let's on that okay, really most people can't fall asleep at work yeah the exception according to an illinois appeals court is a trial judge during a murder trial Okay. Okay, that sounds crazy. What happened? So an Illinois appellate court this week ruled that a trial judge who took a brief nap during a (laughs) murder trial, uh, that it was harmless as long as he wasn't sleeping during crucial evidence or really important motions. I just want to be clear to the listeners. When Bill pitched this story at the meeting and he said, oh, a judge falls asleep, kind of funny, right? I was like, ah, you know, some of these cases are pretty boring. There's probably some securities fraud or some tax evasion thing. It was a freaking murder trial. Well, I know. I know. Look, like, I know. What, what kind of evidence is being presented that the underlying, you just... The underlying thing is not funny. It is funny that the judge fell asleep. Yes. I think I can divorce the two concepts I think from each so. other. But yeah. like, what kind of evidence is being presented where he was like, this is so boring, I'm just going to fall asleep now. So I will run through the whole thing because okay. the uh, Chicago Tribune did a good story on it. So the lights were dimmed so that the jury could watch uh, security camera footage on a monitor, right? And the presentation of the 
security camera footage ended and um, an assistant attorney general asked that the lights be turned back on. Uh, the judge didn't reply. So they asked, judge? The defense attorney asked, um, Judge O'Connor? Judge, could we get the lights back on? Uh, the, the assistant attorney general approached the bench. Hmm, O'Connor replied. <laughs> According to a transcript, a clerk allegedly poked him awake. <laughs> wow. Uh, what a good clerk. It was suggested now that it was a good time to break for lunch. The judge agreed. Excellent time, the judge said. <laughs> I love it, it. It does seem like a good time to break for lunch. Right. Excellent so, time. So this actually came up at the trial court. Uh, the person was eventually convicted, and they brought up this motion for a um, for a new trial based on the judge falling asleep. <laughs> sure. Right? Uh, um, the judge said, quote, if I was not looking at the video, that does not mean I was not listening and hearing everything that was being said. Uh, the judge <laughs> called the motion disgusting. <laughs> uh, He's so offended. So the judge said this was something that didn't really matter. He was paying attention. It was fine. Did that actually hold up? It sounds like it did at the it, appellate court. It sure did. So the appeals court said, you know, that sure, the judge fell asleep, um, but it had no effect on the trial and that the evidence in this case was overwhelming against the alleged defendant. So that's sort of the test. You know, if it wasn't crucial and it wasn't during, you know, these these really important moments, it, it didn't affect the outcome of the case. You know, we're hearing joking around, but there was some important case law being developed here because there's another line in the Tribune story that I found hilarious. The decision builds on more than a century of Illinois bench nap law dating to a five-minute judicial snooze in 1899. <laughs> so judges and have I been doing have... this for decades and decades. Yeah, I, although... I, I, I think we have our new wire, bench nap law 360, coming <laughs> coming to an inbox near you. Uh, so there was... You only read it right before bed. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> uh, there was one dissenting opinion oh, well. from one of the judges on the panel who said, quote, a judge cannot be actively present on the bench when he is asleep. So it wasn't... That it wasn't, seems fair. It wasn't uh, unanimous here, but yeah, snooze away. Judges. I actually, I actually spoke with Judge O'Connor for this segment. You guys, I didn't tell you, and in mm. in, in, in classic old guy fashion, he said uh, he was actually just resting his eyes. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope this podcast hasn't put everyone to sleep, but that'll wrap us up for today. Thanks for bringing the story, Bill. <laughs> And Alex, thanks for being with me as well. Thank you. I was kidding about interviewing the judge, by the way. I don't know if that was clear. <laughs> as always, we have many people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our guest this week, Andrew Strickler, and contributing reporters, Abra Coe and Ben Guerreri. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've discussed today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast, and please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and join us again next week. <laughs>